This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Play the play on the show. It is Danny and Gallant. Some reactions on the text line about Richard Sherman and maybe why Seattle has been a little more compassionate, a little more understanding. Sherman is more likable than Earl. It's more about respect versus likability. Earl Thomas is selfish, self-centered. There's a word there that I can't say. That's the difference between him and Sherm. I think it's interesting how cities decide on who they either forgive or look past. It's an interesting phenomenon to ask. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's very interesting to contrast the reactions that, that people have had to two situations, which are very different, but involve two players who were equally important to two great teams. Uh, we've got Brock Hewart, who joins us now. It's time for Blue 42. Here we go. This is Blue 42. We're going to go red, right, tight, close, sprint, left, G, U, corner, halfback, flat, on two. Ready, right. Now here's your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Blue 42. Blue 42. Good morning, Brock. How are you now? Good morning, Paulie. Is it kind of nice to have your aloha brother back in the house? Mm-hmm. You're Holly from New York City. Holly. I made a... about a Holly. What does that mean? I don't know. Uh, white person. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's he's slightly tanner than me now, uh, Tanny oh. O'Neill. Oh. Nah, I'm not tan. I don't tan. Brock tans. Brock Brock will get a, a deep shade of tan. Mm. Does that mean Bronzed. he bronzes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, question one, just piggybacking off of where we left off, Brock, with Richard Sherman. Why is it that when Richard Sherman has something like this happen, there's a lot more empathy for him for maybe somebody like an Earl Thomas? Yeah, I would probably agree with that texter, what, what right or wrong, just perception-wise, and, and as I, I would speculate on that answer, is I think the Seahawk fan would deem Earl more selfish. I think that middle finger to to Pete on the field was the final, like, fine, like, you don't want to be a part of us, versus Richard, I'm my own agent, tore my Achilles, I'm negotiating my own deal, and even though there was a little bit of scorched earth on his way out... I think people remember the tip. I think people remember screaming at uh, at Aaron Andrews post game. I think people remember the rants, you know, about the Legion of Boom and the LOB. And he was the he was the Jimmy Hart of the LOB. He was the mouth, <laughs> the mouth of the South. <laughs> he was he was the mouthpiece. And I think because of it, built so much equity. And Danny, we talked about this during those heydays. I remember sitting in Stark, not, yeah, Starkville, Mississippi. Plugging my Comrex unit on a Friday into the into the radio set there in that stadium and taking calls, Danny, you and me taking calls on like, man, has the has the Seahawks fan changed? Have you now become cocky? Is passive aggressive shut the door? And is Jimmy Hart, Richard Sherman, the mouth of Seattle, given you now a mouthpiece to to get behind? And I think it was definitively yes, yes. So I think there's just a, a ton more equity there between those two, Paul, is just kind of the yeah, kind of the mouthpiece, the centerpiece of all that was the LOB. It spawned Richard Sherman spawned a editorial that was written, I believe, by my my, my wife. She said uh, the the collective shame over Seahawks cornerback Richard Sherman's postgame comments. This is the Aaron Andrews is not about sportsmanship. It's about Seattle wanting to be nice. 
You want to be on top? Own it. Seattle could use a little more trash talking. This city needs some swagger. Instead of doing a touchdown dance, Seattle would prefer to wring its hands about whether it's a world-class city. Our Scandinavian founders would probably prefer the Denver quarterback Peyton Manning's aw shucks to Sherman's bravado. You want to be a winner, Seattle? You better dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee. As a member of the editorial board, I engage in thoughtful question and debate, but some issues defy the Socratic method. I only had one thing to say to 49ers fans at the bar where I watched the NFC Championship game on Sunday. You mad, bro? I aim to shermanate. It's time to do some trash talking. Other states want to come take our Boeing 777X assembly line. Our state will turn around and wave you off as it sails into the end zone. You don't go up against the best riveters in the country and expect to win. Don't open your mouth about the best. I aim to make the... I'm making the choking sign at Bertha sitting on its backside under the boardwalk. You were brought here to drill the widest single bore tunnel ever. You don't cost the state $2 billion back up traffic to West Seattle for years and stop drilling for seven weeks because of a rock. When did, did you just pull that out, Danny? Are you reading that from rote memory right now? No, no. I, I, I looked it up on, on the internet. Uh, it was written J- January 24th, 2014. that. That's amazing. It's pretty funny. Well, and, and I think it's pretty accurate. Steve Largent was the first Hall of Famer with the Seahawks, right? And what was he? He was just Tulsa, red clay, yes. hardworking, quiet, don't say anything. I'll hit my Carden right in the mouth after he knocks me out. But I'm not going to do it with my mouth. Cortez Kennedy, not going to do it with my mouth. Ken Griffey Jr. didn't even really want to talk to the media. I guess Gary Payton was of a similar vein and maybe beloved yeah. in the same yeah. way. But but he was a he was a beaver, and uh, you know, and, and there were some I think questions and some spats about how much he practiced and everything else. There was never any question about the competitive fiber and juice. Of Richard Sherman. He was beloved in that manner and even louder and even more high profile because they were the greatest defense in, you know, right up there with the Indian history led by that LOB. So therefore, again, to uh, to Sharon's points, he, he changed <laughs> he changed he changed the dynamic of a passive aggressive state into aggressive aggressive and people sure got behind him. Uh, speaking of Gary Payton, and this is, I need to attribute it properly, Mike Gastineau, a uh, longtime radio host in this region, once he was talking to George Carl about George, what, I think it was why George was so grumpy, and George just looks at me and goes, what you don't understand is my day every day starts with a 15-minute discussion with Gary Payton about whether or not he's going to practice. <laughs> <laughs> practice. It's like, that explains a lot, George. Yeah. We're talking about Question practice? two. <laughs> I, I asked this to the professor, and he he wa- waved me off. He waved me off like Joe West shooing Kyle Seeger after the <laughs> the premature called third strike. Uh, who's more likely to have a breakout season this year, Rashad Penny or Cody Barton? Rashad Penny. Yeah, I think Rashad Penny. Yep. But See, also, the professor too, told me I was but, silly. It but told, also told too, me I was silly. It's Cody Barton. Cody Barton's going to be the strong side way. linebacker. He is. Cody's going to be the strong side linebacker. I don't think so. Yeah. I think he's a little light in the cakes. I think he is too. I think that suit picture years ago kind of unfortunately <laughs> doomed him for a little body in a big, big suit. I mean, he's not a little guy. He's he's by you know human being standards is is plenty above average for the NFL and what you got to do from just a dynamic, twitchy, powerful, all of those things. 
hard to do at the edge of the line of scrimmage. He was an inside backer at, at Utah. He was smart. Mm-hmm. He was savvy. He's a lot like Ben Burkirvin. I mean, he kind of drafted two similar guys. Cody a little bit bigger than Ben. That's why he was a third rounder and Ben was a fifth rounder, but both. I think profile more than anything to be just quality, studly special teams guys. And if one of them becomes your special teams captain in the vein of Larry Izzo, and I've said in the vein five times this morning, I apologize, but if, if he does, then there's a roster spot for him. But to think he's going to be some 250-pound Bruce Irvin set an edge, you know, collision jet sweeps, collision tight ends, get home at times, drop into coverage, do all the things that that position you know, although it's on the field a third of the time, still has to do. I have a hard time forecasting Cody Barton being that. Rashad Penny, I have a hard time forecasting being available and being durable. But same with Chris Carson. And we know there will be opportunities. So breakout year, all of a sudden we look back in January and say, gosh, I didn't see that coming from Cody Barton. I didn't see that coming from Rashad Penny. I think both of them are long shots, but overall productivity I think there's more opportunity for Rashad Penny. Exactly. And I think with Daryl Taylor, too, and all that we've heard about Daryl Taylor for the last two seasons without actually having seen him do anything, I feel like the Seahawks are going to bend over backwards to give him every opportunity where they probably won't give many to Cody Barton. Well, he's got the clay to mold. Everything that I just said about being, you know, 6'2", 6'3", 250 pounds, yoked out of your mind, powerful, strong, Frank Clark on an edge, you know, strong side linebacker, Bruce Irvin on the edge, strong. I mean, just look at the profile of, of what Pete looks for in that body type, type wise, athleticism wise. And that leans big time to Daryl Taylor. So he'll be given opportunity, but I think you also got to be a little careful. This is your Dave Wyman, like potential will get you fired. Like he's got a lot of potential. He hasn't done a thing yet in this league. Is there the tools to work with? Yes, but he sure got a lot of proof, lot to prove as well. How how are you feeling about Daryl Taylor, Paul? Because Total and, oh. I, well, I just, for you too, Brock. Because because I look at it and I'm like, everything they've said so far is the kind of thing Pete says about putting the best vision forward for what this player can become. I don't Correct. think it tells me very. It doesn't give me a, a, an understanding of how likely he is to fulfill that. I. I'm going to believe it when I see it with Tara. Yeah, let me see the 10 snaps in preseason where he's got an opportunity to be violent. Remember Frank Clark, his rookie year? Yeah. You know, he, he didn't know what he was doing, but you could just see a source of power, and he would just collapse at the end of the line of scrimmage. He would just decimate, you know, blockers trying to block him. And you were like, geesh, what was that, uh, what, uh, Ralph? Uh, what was the arcade character turn movie? Wreck-It Ralph? Wreck-Em yeah. Ralph? yeah. Yeah, he was Wreckham Clark. Right? He was just Wreckham Frank there his his rookie year. Daryl Taylor, this this is, in essence, his rookie year after missing all of last season. I'd like to see in preseason five, ten snaps of, of Wreckham Daryl. Of all of a yeah. sudden, just like whack-a-mole. Like, bam, there goes that tight end. Bam, you want to run jet sweep. There you are. Not that he's got to make every play, but you just see that physical presence. That's what he's going to have to put on display. And until you are in pads, in-game, in those moments, there is no way to really project or forecast that. The coming out moment for Frank Clark when he did exactly what Brock was talking about, it was in game two of his rookie year mm. when they were taken on the San Diego Chargers, who were then still in San Diego. It was an extraordinarily hot game, and he messed with he messed with Phillip Rivers. It's that same game where Bruce hit him late. Like, Frank reached in and did something to Phillip Rivers, and Rivers was yelling at him afterwards. And when I asked Bruce after the game what Frank did, Frank... Or Bruce kind of smiled at me and he goes, he's going to fit right in with us. 
<laughs> That's a great answer. It's pretty funny. The thing with Taylor for me, there's just been so much said about him just from draft day on, and I am hearing too much without having seen anything. I'll say it's a little, little tiresome at this point, but we'll see this season. Question three. Brock, I saw a story on Pro Football Talk about how Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger will likely overtake Brett Favre as the most sacked quarterback in NFL history this year, and they are well within striking distance. If you take a look at the actual numbers as far as where Brady is, as far as where Roethlisberger is, the all-time record is 525 by Favre. Tom Brady, 521. Ben Roethlisberger, 516. Halfway through the year, they'll both overtake Brett Favre. But what I found interesting, you know, Brady's going into year 21. Roethlisberger's going into year 17. Russell Wilson is 20th all-time in terms of time sacked. In just nine years, sacked 394 times. He is going to blow those guys out of the water as far as the most sacked quarterbacks in NFL history down the, down the road, especially seeing as we're going to go to a 17-game NFL schedule. Yes. Do you think he can change that? Do you think that he can at the very least perhaps lower that sack rate because it feels like 40 sacks a year is a lock every single season with him? If he's going to play 17 years or 21 years, that is a have to. That's not a, I, I hope he does. I, I wish he does. There, there's no way he's going to sustain 20 years in this league and be sacked at the pace he's sacked right now, which would put him at 800 sacks. That's just, that's untenable. The body eventually, as you do get older, I know he's been unbelievably gumby and tough and resilient and never misses you know, a, a, a game hardly a snap in his nine years but I think that too is is what he echoed postseason I, we got to protect better and I, I think if John Gruden were sitting down with Russell Wilson back in the day of John Gruden camp down there in Orlando he would say hey Russ man, you got to also learn to protect yourself and that thing's got to be sailed into the front row and he's gotten better at that you know I, I, I think he's, he's learned an awful lot I don't think he takes the collisions that he did early in his career, and, and Danny and Paul in particular, the one I remember with J.J. Watt, that would probably knock the head off of a normal human being, right? Just scrambling around and, and trying to get extra yards. He gets down at, at all times. He does not look to run. He has said that multiple times. Yeah, and I think over the course of the next five, six, eight years, as just naturally you lose your legs a little bit, as Warren Moon would tell you, and you can't move like you used to, and you're not as twitchy as you once were, He's going to have to play a little bit more from the pocket. Getting rid of that ball and, and you know, taking away some of those sack numbers will be at the second end, you know, I think the second phase of his career a lot more than it's been this first decade. Are you are you giving proper consideration to the effect of nanobubbles? <laughs> like nanobubbles might have helped his durability. Or the mattress. What was the mattress? <laughs> <laughs> we should come up with the power rankings of Russell's worst businesses. Or eat the ball. <laughs> It's eat the ball. Eat the ball is the worst. Oh. Eat the ball is the worst. God bless like we're, everybody, everybody's they, playing for second place after that. Are they still around? I can't imagine. And I they will were say a though, wonderful sponsor to our football camp. You know the seven ten camp we did and provided lunch at least a year, maybe two. So I don't want to be too disparaging. People don't like man. carbs though, bro. Man, was there was everything. Carb everything ball. about that. So it was. It, it was bread. Shaped like a football <laughs> that was advertised that you could keep it on the shelf for a year. Mm. Like, it, what about that? Like, you're like, hey, this bread, like in today's like artisanal, like fresh made, locally sourced, small batch. Like, what made you think, hey, this bread will stay good for a year? 
people who are like, oh, give me some of that. That sounds like it's great. That's got some good sustenance in it for you. <laughs> I mean, if a eat nuclear the apocalypse is coming, then that's good. So, yeah. so you put eat the ball one nano bubbles. Uh, forget even that mattress. Someone has to text in. What was the mattress he had? Was like that a, was Brady was involved in that too. Oh, like yeah. Brady was like that. That one's not just on Russell. Brady fell for that one too. Yeah, I can't hate. I had the TB twelve method book. So the the other thing though about <laughs> it's possible that eat the ball sent a bad message because isn't that what you say to someone like when you're saying just take the sack, just eat the ball, don't yeah. throw it, don't or don't True. get picked off. True. Maybe that set like a bad precedent in Russ's mind that he he was, that's why he's had so many sacks because he eats the ball. Could have been. Could have been. It's great to have you back, Danny. Glad you, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you got a nice, a, a nice little tan there, or an Irish tan, or whatever you got going. And yeah, I got freckles, Brock. I got my body is one big freckle at this point. And excited to see the surfing videos in the days and the weeks <laughs> and the years to come too. Those will be fun. Bro- Brock, we love it. We'll talk to you tomorrow. See you, buddy. That is Brock Heward. Uh, he joins us Monday, Tuesdays, and Thursdays for Blue Forty Two. The Mariners are already down one roster spot. Hector Santiago suspension. So they've got seven more games in which they they have one fewer roster spot than normal. Not only do they miss Hector Santiago, they don't even get his ro- his roster spot to use. And yesterday they were missing an outfielder. Well, now now Dylan Thomas has been called up, but Jake Fraley tested positive for COVID nineteen. It's not as big an impact as the 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 outbreak that Seattle had earlier this year. And that's because it's just one player at this point. And I suppose that's probably part of the reason that I found myself reacting very differently to this news than I did earlier this year when they lost multiple relievers. I still have about the same take as I did. I respect your decision whether you want to or not with the vaccine, but if you're not going to, you probably shouldn't be playing in on a in a sport where you're at such close proximities with one another for such a long period of time. Because if not everybody is, you know, vaccinated, then there's a chance that maybe it spreads throughout the team and all of a sudden you find 10 guys unavailable to play. Availability is the one thing that you should be able to guarantee your team every single day when you are being paid by them. So that was my thought, and it still is my thought, but as time goes on, I have and the same boat as you. I'm, I'm a lot less worked up about something like this, too. You know, it's one thing when it's a couple of different pitchers that are unavailable for you when you are banged up as you are. This is one in, one guy that's out, so not optimal, but hard for me to get worked up over it. Too. Now, the, important to make a couple things clear. The Mariners, uh, Scott Service, Jerry Depoto, the franchise, can't discuss a player's vaccination status. Uh, Ryan Divish in the Seattle Times reported and said that according to a Major League Baseball source, it was believed that Fraley was still among the handful of players who are unvaccinated. And because of that, he has to remain on the injured list for a full 10 days. It's not just if you have received the vaccine and test positive, it's then when you're no longer testing positive, you're eligible to return. This is going to be a full 10-day quarantine. I I think that's also part of it, too, because getting the vaccine doesn't mean you won't catch it. There are still going to be breakthrough cases and instances in which players or people who have been vaccinated are going to test positive. And the, the, the belief or the research points to the fact that if you do contract coronavirus after receiving the vaccine, that you, you may not show any symptoms and, and that the case would be less severe if you do happen because it's not a foolproof method. It doesn't mean that you won't 
ever right. catch it. It's basically but, if you do get it, you're going to have a much less of a chance of getting hospitalized afterwards, which is, of course, the most important thing. Like, hey, all right, maybe maybe you, you don't prevent yourself 100 percent from getting it, but you're not going to die. Right. The other thing. Yes. And the other thing was that I think that the status we, we spent a lot of time talking about the Mariners and whether or not they got to 85 percent of their tier one personnel. It's not players. It's tier one personnel. So that includes coaches, all the people that are in day to day contact with with the baseball operations, essentially that team that 85 percent once 85 percent are vaccinated, different rules apply. And I, I know Major League Baseball isn't announcing the teams that get to that status, we know that there are, as of the end of June, there were 23 of the 30 teams. I think the Mariners must have reached that status, though. I would imagine it seems so, like, yeah. It seems like rules have changed. It Scott Service isn't wearing a mask in the dugout anymore, right? Like mm-hmm. when he came out onto the field yesterday when Ty France got hit in the head. like he's And, and also with Fraley, what, what Service made the point is that the guys that were closest to him on the flight, because he flew with them to... to to Anaheim, to Los Angeles, they were vaccinated. So I, I think that the fact that they've, it looks like they have reached that threshold because there are different rules that are applying now and, and the contact tracing is is less, it, is, it, it doesn't force as many guys to be sat down. How seriously, though, do you think baseball is still perhaps enforcing those rules, seeing as things outside of it in California have become rather normal? over the last month and a half or so. I mean, there, that's also a dynamic. Is baseball actually enforcing it? The the league with the with the uh, wimpiest, limpest stick as far as any enforcement goes, unless it's Hector Santiago, free Hector Santiago? Well, yeah, I think they are still as as determined and focused on it. And I think when, when it happens, something like contact, I think those are out of the team's hands. It's not a matter of whether the team is enforcing it anymore. Guys are still being tested, and... It, it's just that there are different rules that that apply, and I think because more teams have reached that eighty five percent, now you're looking at what's well, more than two thirds, more than three quarters of the league that is is at this point has eighty five percent that the different, the less stringent contact tracing and the less stringent restrictions have applied, and that's why we've seen fewer games disrupted. Because teams, the same protocols aren't in place. Where if you have less than that 85%, a positive test by a player triggers not just that player sitting down, but guys that have been in proximity to him right. sitting down, whether or not they've been vaccinated. And we saw Friday. I mean, Friday's Red Sox Yankee game almost got canceled. And for a moment, it was postponed. And then they actually ended up playing it somehow. But I remember there was a moment in time where I was like, oh, wow, this is sort of like what we were seeing at the beginning of this year and a lot of last year. But for the most part, yeah, things have un- trended in a much better direction on that front. So that's good. But I-, I still think that as the season progresses, you're going to see this occasionally. And I'm very curious as to how this looks in the NFL. Aren't you? I mean, this coming yes. season, uh, because it's very clear that there are two separate rules that you are going to be operating under if you are a vaccinated player in the league or a non-vaccinated player in the league. And the teams that get to that threshold, there are still a couple teams that weren't at 50% of their players being vaccinated as the last I've heard. It is Danny and Gallant. J.P. Crawford provides an example of why patience pays off. We'll explain next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. The Kraken have their full menu of available options in the expansion draft. There's a goalie 
from the Canadiens, Gary Price, who is a couple years ago was one of the best goalies in the league. Yep. But he's 33, and apparently there's we've come to learn he might need a hip re- no, not hip replacement. He's too young for that. It's not quite that. But he's 33. Well, he's expensive, and he might have a bum hip. He'll be 34 in August. Ah, 34. They are, which is not that far off from what Mark Andre Fleury was when the Golden Knights took him, and that went well. But yes, they're apparently as they're doing their due diligence, they're finding out that he has a hip injury that could need surgery, which could cause him to miss a significant portion of next year. So there's reports that they've gotten the go ahead to spend on him if he does get the green light. But that is a concern at the moment. Uh, I mean, you're also seeing right now a younger Seattle athlete in Evan White lost for the season with a hip yeah, injury. Yeah, that stinks. Not a surprise, right? Because no, we haven't seen him in about two months. I am always really concerned with any athlete who needs a hip surgery and what that means for them. Well, oh, goalie, really? Goalie, yeah. that's a big deal. Especially when we're talking about flexibility and, as you say in hockey, the ability to stand on one's head, etc. Which is, which is, because knee injury guy, knee injury guy we've gotten Past pretty much like we we all look at it and like hey it's not great but he's going to recover from that it's not a career changing thing I'm always in baseball I'm really worried about wrist injury guy and back injury guy like those are the two where I'm like Ugh! like very very hip injury it seems like guys guys have hip injuries but they get over them right Bo Jackson yeah but that's different like Bo's 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 the exception there's nothing normal about Bo Jackson. True. Percy Harvin had a hip surgery. He came back and scored a touchdown in the in the Super Bowl that year. Tua had the same injury as Bo Jackson, for what it's worth. Uh, Tua Tagovailoa. So we will see how that one goes. I, I don't know. There, there's something about that where ACL injuries have become somewhat normalized to me. Yeah. I almost expect an immediate 100% recovery. Achilles are getting actually, it seems like, a little bit easier to bounce back from as well. Hip injuries, it feels like, are the ones where it's just really difficult to actually make sure that you're the 100% the same guy after the fact. But it really does depend on the injury itself. And I know with Bo Jackson, we're talking about, what, a fracture, right? So a little bit different. Well, and he was mistreated. They didn't True. realize that he was bleeding internally. And it was yeah, because he was such a freak physically that nobody <laughs> yeah. imagined that he could have named like his own body. Too, so. Do you guys Which... remember when we talked to John Forslund? Uh, he said that Ron Francis is very, very top secret. So do you think there could be some of this floating around just to kind of throw people off? Maybe, but would would you want to throw people off for the expansion draft? Does it does it even matter at this point, right? I mean, you kind of have the pick of the litter, I would assume. I really want them to get P.K. Soup on. I, I, I feel like to have an enigmatic personality, someone who's entertaining, would be really good for this team to have, and maybe that's... Maybe that's a better way to start building a team is to have a guy that's like exciting as opposed to a goalie who might be good for you for one, two years as he gets up there in age. P.K. Subban was because he was I just love that quote where the guy wanted to fight him and he was like, I'm not going to fight you. Yes, I'm a weenie. He goes, but <laughs> you're a terrible hockey player. You're absolutely horrible. It was you're an awful hockey player it was was absolutely fantastic. Come back. He's playing for the Nashville Predators uh, at that point. Well, we'll see what the Kraken do. Expansion draft is a week from Wednesday when they'll, when they'll be making their picks. No, no, no. It's this Wednesday. Two days from now. Yes. We, we, we've got we, – they are on the clock almost. Live in so, Gasworks Park, actually. It's going to be on Wait, ESPN they're going to bring all the players that they're choosing to Gasworks Park? Are they going to introduce them by paddleboard? <laughs> no. <laughs> 
<laughs> it is Danny and Gallant. Uh, the Seattle Mariners, you should not have laughed at that joke. That was absolutely horrible. Uh, the Seattle Mariners win two of three against the Angels over the weekend. Logan Gilbert showing that he might, in fact, be the Mariners' best pitcher right now, best starting pitcher, setting a career high in strikeouts. J.P. Crawford didn't have the best weekend, but has remained one of the guys that is an example of how you can rebuild which is taking a player who was very high profile somewhere else and it didn't happen for, showing a little bit of patience and giving them a fresh start. Because J.P. Crawford is finally playing like the player that Philadelphia expected him to be four years ago. It's taken a little bit of time. And I think that's a lesson to everybody that we tend to jump to conclusions when an initial prospect, when their first run through doesn't produce the kind of success that that is expected of them. No doubt. And and that, I think, is something that should make you a little bit more patient with maybe not Logan Gilbert, who's been so great, but with Jared Kelnick and his three-game hitting streak and some of the other young Mariners players as they come up because... For J.P. Crawford, it feels like he was a totally different player when he first came here. Adam Jude had a piece in the Seattle Times about him and about how he might be the guy, the leader of this team going forward. And he tells this story about how when Crawford first came to the Mariners in spring training, he was sitting in the back of the room as coaches were going through defensive situations and sort of like one of those guys he's not really paying that much attention to it. But then he was challenged and he has been a lot more engaged and all of a sudden he's gone from a guy who people thought was going to be able to make a career in the majors as a bat. He has gone to being one of the better fielders and the bat's one of those things where you're feeling like it's going to get better. Also in this article you find out, okay, he changes his bat after using Jake Nottingham's for a bit and he gets a bat that's I guess a little bit more evenly weighted across it and his hitting has picked up a lot since then. But he said... All of the things that you want to hear a young, potentially star baseball player say, no matter who you are, no matter what number of prospect you are, this league is going to handle everybody differently. If you're not ready, it's going to show. It's going to humble a lot of people. It humbled me. And whatever that humbling process was for Crawford, it really does seem to have served him extremely well. The Mariners bought at the right point. Right. Aside from the aside from the development argument of, hey, what did they do to develop him? There's a lot that can be learned from the Mariners taking a flyer or picking up a guy at the low point of his value. And the low point of a player's value is when they experience their first extended run of failure. Right. That if if there was a guide that I could say to building a franchise that would go across multiple sports, look for high profile players who have not panned out in their first run with the team. And go ahead and take a flyer on him because you're not going to spend that much on that guy. And maybe maybe he is. I don't even know if it's a 50-50 proposition that that guy's going to pan out. But you're going to spend so little on them that if it does, it becomes – like J.P. Crawford, you sit there and look at it and you're like, oh, why was Philadelphia so dumb? Why, why would Philadelphia give up on this player who is, is now thrived? It just took him a little longer – for a variety of reasons. And not only that, he's become a much better fielder in part because of those struggles. And you get, they, they've, they've turned their back on a guy who could have been a huge, an, an essential cog for them. The most valuable thing in, in baseball is a young, cost-controlled star. And, and J.P. Crawford looks like he's on the brink of becoming that. Teams do that all the time, man. The guy doesn't pan out at first, so they just bail. And you can understand why. But Philadelphia really screwed this one up. And maybe maybe it wouldn't have worked for him in Philadelphia, though, just given the expectations that Philly has compared to just about every city. They, that is probably the most demanding sports town that there is, considering 
there's not really a standard that Philadelphia should, I guess, have to say, like, oh, you got to play at this level. They've won, what, two titles over the last 30, 40 years or so. So I look at where Crawford is now, and it just feels like it's an easier situation for him, but it also feels like there's some credit that should not just go to Crawford, but also to Scott Service, who seems to have done a pretty good job of getting the most out of Crawford. And, and Service in this piece that Jude put together said it's a good lesson for us and for everybody else that it does take time. They don't show up and become all-stars right away. And now you're seeing with Crawford where all of a sudden everything is finally rounding out, and hopefully that is something that Jared Kelnick is seeing, looking at, thinking about, and realizing, hey, I don't have to do all these things right away. Let's just approach things day by day and slowly get better over time. And eventually, if Crawford can do this, you would think that Kelnick could do it even more. Well, one other piece of housekeeping. We talked last segment about the COVID restrictions and the question of whether the Mariners were at the 85% threshold. This is from Mariners.com, story there by Dan Kramer. The Mariners are not at the 85% vaccination threshold that more than two-thirds of the league is, which allows for loosened health protocols. So some of the things that we are observing, the signs, uh, whether it's mask wearing or guys on the plane next to him being vaccinated, that reflects... uh, a potential change in league-wide standards, not that the Mariners have reached that threshold. They have not. They remain one of seven teams that has not gotten to that point. It is Danny and Gallant. Coming up next, Paul's finally found a reason that he's not rooting for Phoenix. It's a good one. You'll hear it next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. The NBA Finals have turned into an incredible series, especially over the last two games. And this isn't going to be a conversation about basketball as much as just likable athletes. Danny, Giannis Antetokounmpo in the last two games in the NBA Finals has done two highlights that if the Bucs end up winning the Finals, we will likely be seeing for the next 10, 20 years or so. First off, an incredible defensive back-esque swatting away of an alley-oop to DeAndre Ayton that would have won game four or tied game four up. And then the icing alley-oop of a pass after Chris Paul had been uh, ripped at the end of game five. That's one of... He got deboed. J. Rue Holiday deboed him. Just like, that's my ball. It was incredible. And you wonder about Chris Paul and all the tendencies of Chris Paul that you don't like. The flopping, the... This could be the fourth time he blows an 0-2 lead. Right, and which is not entirely his fault, but he's there situationally it's his fault. in all those spots. And he has been turning the ball over a lot. You're right, in the worst possible spot. But Giannis Antetokounmpo had this amazing catch of an alley-oop. I remember seeing this at the bar uh, at Ballard. Um, we went to Shelter, and the the whole place lost its mind when, when that happened. And it was cool to feel normal again. But Giannis on Friday, and this was after the game-winning essentially um, deflection that he had of that alley-oop to DeAndre Aiden. He was asked about that highlight, and and this is what he had to say afterwards. And, man, how do you not like this guy? From my experience, right, like when I think about, like, oh, yeah, I did this. You know, I'm so great. I had uh, 30. I had 25, 10, and 10, or whatever the case might be. Because you're going to think about that. Oh, we won this and that. Usually the next day you're going to suck. Right. You know, Simple as that. You like the next few days, you're gonna be terrible. And uh, I figured out like a mindset to have that like when you focus on the past, that's your ego. I did this, you know. Um, we were able to 
you know, um, beat this team for all. We, we did, I did this in the past. I won that in the past. Right. And when I focus in the future, it's my pride. Like, yeah, next game, game five, I do this and this and this. Right. You know, I'm going dumb. That's your pride talking. Like, you, it doesn't happen. Like, you're right here. And um, I kind of, like, try to focus in the, you know, in the moment, in the present. And that's humility. That's being humble. That's not setting no expectation. That's going out there and enjoying the game, competing at a high level. So, uh, clean up on the text line, by the way. It, it was Devin Booker who got ripped there. Um, Giannis was struggling with free throws in that game, and yet down the stretch, it was the alley-oop that he had and the deflection that he had of the missed free throw, getting the rebound, the offensive board for Milwaukee to eventually ice the game. That was, I think, just so cool to see, and he's so easy to root for. I mean, you see him with these struggles, but... Listen to him talk like that. What NBA star talks like that? Like, name one. I mean, he, he feels like one of a kind on that front. There's always just this ego, and maybe it's because of his background, where he's from, and all the things that he had to overcome just as a kid coming over from Greece. But it's really been I, – I, I love this guy. He's so fun to watch. And now I am rooting for Milwaukee in the finals, even though I did want Chris Paul to win. Nope, I've, I've, I've done a 180. I want Giannis to win. Giannis's personality – it makes him he's just a lovable dude there's a video that i've seen circulating of a girl came and handed him it was it looked like a series of drawings she'd made like a little booklet yeah. of things and he stands up and walks around to give her a hug and then poses for a photo he's like oh i can't believe you did this you drew this it, like he's just he's a sweetheart i typically don't like basketball players who don't thrive on scoring i i like scores I think that's the name of the game in basketball. I think there's there's times that I'll really like a point guard who sets things up, but Anto Dacumpo, it's really what stands out about his game is how athletic he is at his size and how he runs the floor. He is dominating that series even though he struggles to score. He is dominating it because of how hard he plays and how well he runs. It's a totally different style of game. It's I guess it's reminiscent almost of what Ben Wallace did with the Pistons, but that was a different era of basketball where it was a little it was easier to grind the game down and slow it down. He's he's doing it by the pace he plays at. It's been a really fun series to watch. I'm not sure and I don't really particularly care how many other people are watching it. It's it's a great series. Devin Booker's an unbelievable score. He's become a star in this series. DeAndre Ayton is is someone I think he's he probably needs a little more stamina. It seems like he can run out of gas late in games. And then and then watching the way Giannis gets them to play because of how he that play the alley oop dunk that he has, I he's the only big man that runs the floor like that yeah. to make that happen. He's the only one. It's pretty remarkable. It was a it was a heck of a play. And if you can think of a more likable athlete in sports, and let's just speak about it objectively. We're not talking about Seattle athletes necessarily. We're just looking at it from you have no reason to root for this person, and yet you do. Can you top Giannis and Tentacumpo? So seven ten, seven ten, Mac and Jack's Brewing Company text line. Danny, we have uh, continuously seen our guy Ty France get hit. Out yeah, man, there. he got he yesterday was that was, was the scary. Scariest? Yesterday, yeah, I mean that. You know what? Thank goodness those helmets now have that little uh, chin uh, armor <laughs> flap because yeah. it would have smashed him right in the cheek had he not had that piece of uh, plastic or whatever it is right there. He still got bonged in the mouth, right? But it was the flap that hit him, not the baseball. 
like the bla- the the flap took the full brunt of the baseball and then kind of knocked into his face. His sunglasses went flying. He's gotten hit fifteen times. Major League Don high. Baylor reincarnated, and Don Baylor had like twice as much mass. Mm-hmm. It's it's because he sits in on the plate as much as he does, right? So I I think it's worked it, out for him though. I mean, he's hitting so well this no, season. You don't it want him to. You don't. No, want, I mean, it, if he's hitting well, if he steps back a, a step, Danny, is that going to affect him at the plate? I think it would. Yeah, yeah, no, no. The the answer is not getting him to step back a step. The 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 answer is maybe making a pitcher think twice about throwing inside because they might get bludgeoned. Like we're getting close to the point where I feel like there needs. I mean, I always root for fights in baseball. Like I'm not going to be like I am begging for a fight. There was part of me that hoped that yesterday the the guy that hit him yesterday was just struggling with his control. Right? He'd plunked. He'd. Pl- when you get hit below the neck, it's getting plunked. When it's above the neck, like above the shoulders, you get beaned. He plunked Hanniger. He beaned. He beaned Ty France, and then he walked a guy later. He just was struggling with his control. But at some point, we're going to need to stick up. Stop hitting Ty France. There's there's uh, one guy that like it's going to be hard for him to, to to get the major league record. There's this guy that played in. There's a couple of guys who played in like the late 1800s. There's this one guy named Huey Jennings who had, was hit 51 times in 1896 and 46 times a piece in 1897 and 1898. <laughs> Baseball a little more violent back then. Goodness gracious. Was definitely more violent. It, it's tough to watch. I, I, it has affected him. Look, that bone bruise, like whatever. Yeah. I, I'm convinced that came from when he got hit on, on the inner the, the inner hand. It's it's affected him this season by getting hit by so many pitches. Stop hitting Ty France. I like that he sits in like that, though. I like a guy who is willing to legitimately take one for the team to get on base. It's been impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's a, there's no doubt about him being a tough dude, but I want him to stop getting hit, or I want people to start getting hit in retaliation, or I want a pitcher to get actually hit for hitting him. 710-710 on the Mac and Jack's Brewing Company text line. Athlete that you root for, but you don't necessarily have a rooting interest for. Barry Sanders is an easy one, right? Who didn't like Barry Sanders? Humble, human highlight reel. Is there somebody out there who's like, yeah, Barry Sanders, who wasn't Emmett Smith or something like that? He's like a truther who felt like that Emmett Smith wasn't appreciated because he wasn't as skilled looking as, as one Barry Sanders. Maybe that's But it. Barry Sanders was like Ernie Banks, right? Like it's impossible to root against a guy whose team never wins. That's true. That's very, very true. Like if you win, then people become resentful of you, even if you're, uh, even if you're a next to perfect human being. Would you say that most people who root for the Seahawks have a deep appreciation for Larry Fitzgerald, even though he is an NFC West yeah. rival? Yes, I don't think there's anybody that hates Larry Fitzgerald. If you if you have a problem with how Larry Fitzgerald is as a football player, and I'm not talking about any off, like yeah, he, he's a, he's a pretty he's a pretty incredible football player. Keep those coming, 710-710, Mac and Jack's Brewing Company text line. Localities aside, who is the easiest athlete to root for in sports? Also, the Mariners have a new ace, (laughs) and he's looking really, really good. We'll tell you who that is next.